country is still trying to recover from the ransomware hack on Colonial Pipeline that triggered panic buying in the Northeast. The incident attacking a major source of fuel for that region exposed our vulnerability to such crimes. We had the opportunity to connect with a man who knows a thing or two about cybercrime. Brett Johnson will be featured in an upcoming fraud prevention event thanks to AARP Hawaii. He is referred to by the Secret Service as the original Internet godfather. Early on, he set up criminal systems on the dark web, buying and selling stolen information and goods. He talked to us about the ransomware fuel disruption and the fraud that's run rampant during this pandemic. The idea that there are some vertical that won't be touched by ransomware is a facade. We've seen hospitals hit. We've seen schools hit. We've seen infrastructure hit before. And we're going to continue to see that hit. You know, of course, the dark side group, they, they kind of sort of maybe apologized for hitting Colonial Pipeline. The only reason that apology came is because there was so much press about it. That's the only reason. They're there to make money. They don't really care who the target is as long as the target pays. And when you shut down a pipeline like that that controls 45% of the gasoline that's coming in, you're going to pay the ransom because, you know, you've got Virginia that's hitting at $7 a gallon. That's the big thing about ransomware. Ransomware is the, the most dangerous form of cybercrime out there right now. It's the most, most effective, most profitable, and you're going to pay the ransom. If you don't, you don't get your data back. That's the key to all this. And criminals know that because they know that at the end of the day, the companies will pay, and I don't care if it's Colonial or PGA or who have you, companies will pay in order to operate. It's a crime that just keeps going. I, I'm not sure how you solve that, especially doing what Colonial did. If you take a proactive response to cybersecurity, that tends not to be as bad. And by proactive, I mean you, you have to anticipate that it's not if you're going to be hit, it's when you're going to be hit. So you make sure you've got all your ducks in a row, make sure that you've got a holistic approach to security, make sure your team members, your employees are trained on what to expect and what those attacks look like. And even then, you stand a very good chance of being compromised still because a lot of the deployment on ransomware or malware or what have you is up at a human level. So you know, you send someone a phishing email or trick them into uh, clicking on a link or plugging in a thumb drive or something like that. That's very simple, but that's typically the way these things are, are installed into systems. Well, this triggered panic buying shortages. If, let's say, if it was a healthcare system, a healthcare company where lives are involved, then people are really hurt in that way. And the thing is, is we, we've seen hospitals hit with ransomware before. It's not very publicized. But we've seen that, and we're going to continue to see that. Now, dark side, the group that hit Colonial, they've got a strict rule against targeting hospitals and healthcare systems. But that doesn't mean that some other ransomware group won't do that. And understand that these ransomware groups these days, these are businesses. They have a customer service department. They have employees. They have a CEO. They run crime as a business. As long as you pay the ransom, you tell every criminal on the planet that the crime works and to keep doing it. We have to get away from that pain ransom, and the only way that you can really do that is to take that proactive response to security. That's the problem with most cybersecurity. Most companies don't worry about security until it's too late, until they've already been victimized. Given your history with the dark side, you have said in the past that, you know, you stole from people you knew and people who you didn't know and you didn't care. Right. And then you see this and you see how many people are hurt. I mean, I mean, this was the company that you used to keep, you know, with the, the folks on the dark side. Right. The thing is, is that when, when you're committing crime, when I committed crime, you have to convince yourself first that you're a good person. So you have that Robin Hood complex or that Jesse James complex. You've got that going on, but you also have to justify the crimes by saying, well, I'm not hurting people. Uh, and the way you do that, especially online, is you never have to face your victim face to face. So you've got that buffer to begin with. And then you say, I like these dark side people are saying, well, you know, it, it's, it's not that we're hurting people, we're taking money from the company. But you're not. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. Even though they shut down and they're targeting Colonial, it affects everything. It affects your gasoline supply. That, that affects everyone across the board. It affects Hartsfield Airport up in Atlanta. They're supplied by Colonial Pipeline. So then it affects your flight systems. It affects the logistics of the city, the truckers that are coming in. So all these prices start to rise, and everyone at the end of the day is victimized. That's one of the things that most cyber criminals, and I, I was right in there too, 
they never really understand or they deny it. Uh, we're not hurting people. We're hurting companies or governments. Well, no. No, you're hurting everybody, everybody across the board. And that's why, you know, today I served prison time. I'm a big proponent of cyber criminals going to prison. I think it does a world of good. If nothing else, it gets them off the street for a while. So, you know, people need to start to accept responsibility, understand that you're hurting people. If you're okay with that, I don't know what to tell you at that point. But I really think that if we can start to change the conversation and, and start educating these people who are out there committing crime that, hey, you're, you know, you're really hurting people. You're not hurting just companies. You're not hurting just the government. You're hurting you know, these mom-and-pop stores. You're hurting these people that are just trying to make a living and put food on the table at the same time. With this pandemic, we have seen the number of scams just you know, soar. It boils down to desperation, all right? So there are three necessities to successful cybercrime if you're a criminal. Those three necessities are gathering data, committing crime, and then cashing out. Okay, so when I talk about gathering data, that's someone's PII, their social security numbers and dates of birth. It's also the tools you use, whether you're spoofing phone numbers or shielding your address. Then you're committing crime, and then you have to put cash in pocket. So all three of those necessities have to work in conjunction. If they don't, the crime fails. The problem, and this is why you see all these criminals networking together on forums and marketplaces, a single criminal is not good in all three necessities. He's good in one necessity, sometimes two, but he can't do all three. He has to rely on other people to help him in some area. And there's, there's been an element of desperation in all three of those necessities. If you're gathering data, you have to use the data before it's flagged as compromised. You have to commit the crime and not get caught. Launder the money. You have to put cash in pocket before the banks are closed down. What happened with COVID, with the pandemic, is the desperation did a 180. Now the bad guys are no longer desperate. They're calm, cool, collected, and calculating. The good guys... The government, the people, the people who've lost their jobs, everybody that's on the good guy side of the fence, all of those people are desperate. United States government and states. Basically, in six weeks, the U.S. economy went belly up. They realized that, hey, things are going to get really bad if we don't get money out to people and people and businesses who need it. So they were desperate to get money out. Well, the thing is, is that desperation leads to poor choices. So they instituted all of these programs and literally had no controls in place whatsoever. Even on the SBA, so the Small Business Association, before the CARES Act, they required two signatures to okay any loan that went through. The CARES Act said, no, we need to get this money out as soon as possible, so we're only going to require one signature. So all the controls that were even in place, and they were small controls to begin with, those were done away with. At the same time, none of these states implemented any security whatsoever. And I mean whatsoever. The only thing you needed was someone's social security number, date of birth, their name. You had an, add an address to it, a phone number, go down to Walmart, pick up a prepaid debit card, and you could commit unemployment fraud all day long. Now, that lasted for about six months until around October is when states finally started to engage with security companies. Security caused such friction with the people who were who were entitled to those benefits, the actual legitimate people, they couldn't ask the identity verification. So they're sitting there months without their benefits. Meanwhile, how do they pay the bills? And that desperation just continues to roll and roll and roll. I, I talked to uh, a reporter from Texas today. The state of Texas alone has lost $893 million to unemployment fraud. And that's, that's the way it is across the board. Billions of dollars lost per state, billions of dollars that will never be regained again, billions of dollars that could be used for each state to help the citizens of that state. But that's gone forever to these criminals who you're not going to catch. You know, you talk about your time in prison, and I, I, I mm-hmm. saw that it was, what, 10 years ago when you were sent to prison, and then you went back Well, again. it was 10. Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> oh, it was. It was, yeah. And, and I just wonder, I mean, was there a point when you went from the dark side to the good guy side? I don't know. Are you still looking over your shoulder? You know, I'm, I'm asked all the time uh, in the interviews, will I ever break the law again? And media wants to hear you say, no, I'll never do that. The truth of the matter is, is I know what my triggers are. I've not broken the law in several years. I don't plan on it, and I think that it's like a recovering alcoholic. The longer you go without breaking the law, the more chance you stand of not doing it again. So that's what I say. I'm a better person than I used to be. I'm not tempted anymore or anything like that. It took, as far as prison goes, it took about two and a half years behind the fence 
for me to uh, really understand that the only reason I was in prison was not because of my sister or my wife or my stripper girlfriend. I committed crime because I chose to. I put myself in prison. Law enforcement didn't. I did that. Uh, it was my choices that led to that. What I saw in prison is that most people, at about a two-and-a-half-year mark, you either accept responsibility for your crimes or you just get really angry and you never accept responsibility. I, I think I was very fortunate that I was able to accept that responsibility. Um, now, you know, what finally got me turned all the way around was I had my sister. She had disowned me. She came back into my life. Uh, my wife, Michelle, now, she was there for me. And then finally, the FBI. The FBI gave me that opportunity to um, use the knowledge I've got just from a, being a career criminal to help people protect themselves from the type of person that I used to be. And that, yeah. that's what I do today. I speak across the planet. I got podcast out. I consult mm -hmm. with companies. Um, I do a lot of free work as well, but I I can't make amends for what I've done in the past, but I'm trying to balance that scale. I don't want to be remembered as the guy who, um, who stole everything. I, I would like to be remembered as the guy who was able to turn everything around at the end of the day. That was Brett Johnson, who law enforcement dubbed at one time the original Internet Godfather. He'll be featured in an ARP Hawaii virtual event this Saturday. You can hear him talk about how to protect yourself from falling victim to fraud scams. Look for links on our website. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to address the impact of COVID-19 by increasing local food supply, investing in youth with scholarships, and helping to support the needs of the most vulnerable island residents. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. You tune to HPR for local reporting that's relevant, reliable, and fact-checked. All qualities that help set the station apart and earn recognition from industry leaders. Congratulations to HBR's news team for winning three regional Edward R. Murrow Awards in the categories of news series, investigative reporting, and excellence in sound. To learn more and to listen to the winning stories, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. The voices to put the pause on Honolulu's rail project are getting louder as we learn of more problems related to the $12 billion drain. We reached out to Honolulu City Council member Heidi Sunioshi, who last week introduced a resolution calling for a pause at Middle Street as we talk about whether the city can afford to build out the last four miles on the route. And the reason why I feel this is so important at this time is because currently we don't have any outstanding contracts past Middle Street since the cancellation of the P3 project, which was to take us from Middle Street to Almoana, and with the cancellation of the city center underground utilities contract. In light of not having any current ongoing contracts, and in light of the information that we are even further behind schedule and the cost continues to escalate, I think that it's very important to the taxpayers now and future taxpayers to pause and make sure that we get precise numbers and a schedule before moving forward, if we do move forward. And has the council gotten any updated ridership numbers, any estimates? We haven't had any updated ridership numbers other than hearing that ridership is down due to COVID. And so that also brings concern to me because not only do we have the cost of the construction and the $3.8 billion gap in funding the construction, we also have the O&M of the project to think about. And with all of that and not knowing for sure what the ridership is, it's even more important that we take a pause to make sure that we can sustain this project that has caused such great concern amongst so many. And so I'm very hopeful that we have that conversation. And I do have meetings with the mayor and have had a meeting with the executive director of HART to just really keep an open mind and that we really think critically about where we are right now and what we need to do to move forward in the most fiscally responsible way. There 
Our folks that say we should continue to ala Moana, we have condemned land along the route with that purpose in mind. There are high-rise developments that are proceeding with the of rail in mind. So what do you say to those folks that want to see the completion to Ala Moana? Right. For those individuals who feel like we, we should go to Ala Moana, I understand their feelings on that. But I really do feel at this point we have to cut our losses and make sure that we can have the system up and running to Middle Street and see what that actually looks like in real time to determine whether we even have the capacity to go on to Ala Moana. So this resolution is not saying that we won't be going to Ala Moana, but it's saying that right now we do need to take an interim terminus at Middle Street and rethink everything that has happened, where we're at now, and what we need to do going forward. And with regards to the properties that were acquired through eminent domain, those properties can be used for other types of multimodal stations, such as bus rapid transit and for the high-rises and developments that were already approved and are in construction. Transit-oriented development is not specific to rail. It's specific to multimodal transportation, so that could be any type of service that we bring down that corridor. Were you feeling any pressure to not introduce this resolution? Well, I can say that uh, many aren't ready to have this conversation. Those that are in support of keeping it going at all costs are not willing to have this conversation. But as we've heard from so many, and as we've heard in surveys that have been done, many, many residents are fed up with the information that they've been giving with regard to this project, are beyond concerned about the cost of this project, and are very disappointed at the delays of this project. So we have to think about everybody's voices at this point, not just those that want to go to Alamoana at all costs. We have to think about those that live in the North Shore and Windward coastlines who need to have access to bus routes, which we need to be able to fund. So there's so much within the city that we have to fund and, and have attention to, not just rail. So as we look to the viability of our city, I think we have to have this conversation. It is just disheartening, I think, with all the delays. I feel very disappointed for all of us. No matter what position you have, whether you wanted it to go all the way to Ala Moana, whether you never wanted rail in the first place, or whether you are just so fed up with the cost and that's all you care about, I, I really do feel for all of all of us in the city and county of Honolulu and actually everyone in our state because everybody in the state is also paying through this, the state revenues that this project was managed so poorly that we really have no benefit at all to talk about at this point. And um, basically it's become a, a project that is for all intents and purposes a failed project and I think by getting it to Middle Street and getting some kind of service operation out of it and getting people at least from Kapolei to Middle Street and then figure out how to reroute buses from Middle Street to have dedicated routes from Middle Street to get riders to where they need to go in town and to Ala Moana and to UH then at least we have some good to come out of this project and then we can figure out what we need to do from there. The powers that be seem so unable to understand and grasp the very dire situation that we are in and not pay attention to any other options is a real concern at this time because that does mean that we're building this project at all costs, which should never be the case. In your mind, it's what can we afford? Exactly. I just want to say, and the reason why this resolution is also important for me at this time, because we have heard from our federal delegation not to have any thoughts of getting any more funding for this project. On the state side, our legislators have told us it's not going to be very likely, if at all likely, that we'll ever get more money from the state. So should this project need continual funding and it falls on the city, our only options are to continue to float general obligation bonds and or do dramatic increases to our real property taxes, which will severely impact our residents and those with legacy homes who are just holding on to homes. And if the real property taxes get so expensive that they can't even pay the real property taxes and lose legacy homes, then that would be truly a tragedy with everything else we have with issues, housing and cost of living. So 
we really need to pause, think about what we're going to do, how we can pay for this if we are going to pay for this, but at least stop at Middle Street, get some benefit out by running it from Copulated Middle Street and see where we go from there. I, I just want to encourage all of those who have an opinion about this to really reach out to your council members and to the mayor because they do need to hear from the residents about how you feel one way or the other. And if you could just share your thoughts with your council members and the mayor, I encourage you to do so. That was Honolulu City Council Member Heidi Suniyoshi talking to us about why she introduced a resolution last week calling to pause the rail project at Middle Street now that the contracts on Dillingham have been canceled. Suniyoshi had hoped the measure would get a hearing this week, but she says now it is expected to get its first hearing in June. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Sunday, May 23rd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. The men and women in these industries built the most powerful union of all time. On this week's show, how Pittsburgh Saga uncovers the broken promises that drive our economy. People were collectively essential and individually disposable. The healthcare economy and the ruins of big steel on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. For our reality check for this Monday morning, Honolulu Civil Beat has a follow-up story on a case involving the former Maui police chief leaving the scene of an accident. Reporter Blaze Level joins us today. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. Nice to be back. Yeah, so share with our listeners, what's the latest? So in February, the Maui Police Commission had asked the Honolulu Police Commission to, you know, conduct this investigative report into what exactly happened on that November day when, you, you know, the former Maui Police Chief Tivoli Fa'umu uh, struck a motorcycle while reversing his pickup truck. Uh, the Maui Commission wanted to do this to avoid any, you know, perceived conflicts of interest. And last week, when they posted their agendas and materials, in that, in those, you know, folders was this uh, pretty lengthy 150-page report um, from the Honolulu Police Commission on, you know, what exactly happened there. And basically, the big takeaway uh, that James Ewan, that's the name of the investigator in Honolulu. Uh, he, he basically concluded that, you know, the charges that the officers brought against Fa'o'umu, and, and it was just, you know, minor civil charges, they was proper and that the officers properly investigated the incident. And, you know, the investigator pretty much found that everyone did things according to procedure. Yeah, I mean, this is important be just because, you know, you don't want that ap appearance of a cover-up or, you know, wrongdoing. Yes, that, and that's one of the reasons why, and probably the biggest reason why the Maui Commission wanted um, Honolulu to investigate. Uh, Chair Frank DeRigo, in a letter to the commission, you know, he said that they don't want to use the Maui Police Department and they don't want to even use the Maui Prosecutor's Office because they didn't want to have the appearance of impropriety when they try to bring this investigation. And it's of, you know, great public interest. It's something that has to do with the police chief. So they wanted to handle this as carefully as they could. So uh, uh, what can, what else can you share with us uh, as far as what they will be talking about at the next meeting? So the Maui commissioners are scheduled to talk about the report on Wednesday with you. And then, uh, like I said, the the uh, report's actually quite interesting. You know, Ewan went, uh, spent a little over a month interviewing Maui, the Maui officers who responded to the scene. He interviewed assistant chiefs. He interviewed Fa'umu himself. And, you know, he found a lot more details than what was previously publicly known. Uh, for example, one of the officers who responded to the scene was a new recruit in field training. Um, and he was actually the one who interviewed the a uh, person who had his motorcycle struck and ran the plates and discovered that it was the police chief who had um, actually hit the motorcycle. 
and, and of course, throughout the course of the investigation and in prior news reports, Fa'umu uh, denied knowing that he hit the motorcycle in the parking lot uh, when he reversed into that stall. Uh, he was apparently called later that day by several supervisors in the Maui Police Department, and, you know, they asked him, you know, Chief, did you, were you involved in a motor vehicle collision? And at the time, he again denied no, and he was told to, you know, go out to his truck and look at the bumper where he saw that it had been scratched, and, you know, that's when he took a picture of it and then reported it, according to the uh, police department's internal protocols. And he was using a subsidized vehicle, right? Uh, that's actually another big thing to point out. His vehicle, his white pickup truck, it is a subsidized vehicle, uh, and he gets monthly payments to use it. Uh, they also pay for part of his insurance, but uh, as part of their insurance deal with the county, it looks like Fa'umu is going to be personally responsible for any damages to the truck and to the motorcycle as part of the insurance agreement. So it, it doesn't seem right now, at least according to Deputy Chief Dean Rickard, it doesn't seem right now that, you know, the county will have to pay for any of the damages to the motorcycle. Right, and then the chief has retired, right? So he retired in good standing? The Maui Commission is set to discuss that on Wednesday, whether or not Fa'umu should retire with good standing, and that will be important for his retirement benefits. As you know, all state employees are eligible for pensions, depending on how long they've worked, and uh, we'll see what happens with that on Wednesday. Yeah, because I think that's an issue that came up in the Kealoha case as well, Chief uh, Louis Kealoha, whether or not he uh, uh, retired in good standing at the time. Uh, but, yeah, interesting point. But thank you so much, Blaze. Thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. Read his story at civilbeat.org. We tip our hats this week to emergency medical service workers who've been out there caring for our community. Here on Oahu, 911 call volumes are on the rise as restrictions are being lifted and life begins to get back to normal. We talked to Dr. Jim Ireland, who recently returned to his job as the director of Honolulu Emergency Services Department. Well, everybody, you know, across our community has, has really stepped up during this really unprecedented 15 or 16 months or whatever it's been since we've had COVID, but, you know, no one has really stepped up more than EMS because they have had to confront the calls and the unknown, especially a year ago when there were no vaccines and, and, and there was very little testing in the beginning. We weren't sure if the PPE was going to work. So it was really stressful. And I just can't say enough about how much the EMS team stepped up and, you know, our dispatchers had new protocols to get information about the type of case it was to warn everybody going in, including the fire department and police. We had, you know, this massive layers of PPE, personal protective equipment that we never had to wear before. We didn't generally wear gowns and we didn't generally wear respirators when we went on calls. Now, for the last 30 years, we've worn gloves. I mean, there was a time many, many years ago, decades ago, people didn't even wear EMS and gloves. So we had to evolve and, and, and to a testament of their professionalism, we only had one full-time employee contract COVID-19, uh, thankfully, and he made a full recovery. With over 600 known COVID patients transported by Honolulu EMS, and there were probably many more than that. So they just did a fantastic job. What you alluded to on the call volume is what we did see, uh, especially you know last summer and the end of last year, 2020, is our call volume did go down by 10 to 20% because people were staying home, people weren't out drinking in bars, there weren't nearly as many tourists here, so call volume did go down. And that did help mitigate the extra stresses and stressors on the system of COVID because not only were the PPE requirements different, uh, the disinfection and the cleansing of the ambulance was a lot more involved after the calls with the sanitizing. So the calls took a lot longer, and they, they emotionally they took a lot more. Um, so having a lower call volume was good, but that's – rapidly going back to kind of business as usual as far as the call volume. The tourists are back, people are out and about, the bars are open. Um, society is getting back to not quite normal, but getting there, so the call volume's back up. 
but we do still have COVID. Not everybody's vaccinated. We're still having cases. You know, fortunately, not like before, but it is still out there and the PPE requirements are still there. Thankfully, there's a vaccine now, and that's why we're just actually still encouraging people to go get the vaccine if they haven't been vaccinated, because that really helps protect everybody. So coming into EMS week, I just couldn't be prouder of our team. Well, have any of your you know personnel come down with COVID? We did have one person, one full-time paramedic that did get COVID. He made a full recovery. We had a part-time paramedic who contracted COVID outside of work. He didn't get it through the job, and he also made a full recovery. So we feel very, very fortunate that in in our department and seeing COVID patients, you know, in, before on a daily basis, it was just really a testament to their professionalism, the PPE, the cleansing, the precautions they took. But if you rewind back to last March, there was a ton of unknowns and and in hospitals and ERs too. And it was pretty stressful for the medical community, knowing you were going to go take care of COVID patients, hoping your PPE would work because we didn't know. And we heard stories from New York and the mainland where medical providers were were getting COVID and dying. And that was was concerning, obviously. To be able to come in and you know you're going to work at night, you're going to work weekends, and you're going to miss Christmases, and and just like other other public service agencies like Ocean Safety and Police and Fire, you're not on the schedule that kind of most people have with nine to five, and then you you know in EMS you just see things that most people in life don't have to see. There was in the news someone was lit on fire, and our team responded to that and, and treated him, and and that was a malicious act, and that makes it even in my opinion even worse to have to take care of a patient like that but they they do it every day every hour answering the call and um you know i couldn't be happier with the work they do and what we do for the community and just just very happy to be able to support them as the director and you know we have seen a uptick in uh, mental health issues with uh, some of the folks on the street you know i think there was a a case where a nurse, I think, was assaulted trying to help a patient. And and your folks have also been kind of um, caught in the crossfire trying to help someone and then, uh, you know, getting hurt in the process. Yep. Unfortunately, that does happen. It's rare, which is good, but it does happen and continues to happen, whether it's because someone is inebriated or on drugs or mentally ill. One of the kind of newer approaches to homelessness and mental illness will involve healthcare response. And a law was enacted, I think, two years ago in Hawaii for the community paramedic program. And we look forward to implementing that probably sometime in the next six to 12 months, where we'll have a not a paramedic who goes on 911 calls like traditional paramedics and going to emergencies, but a paramedic who will respond to crises in the, in the streets or in shelters where Maybe someone doesn't need acute ER-type care, but they, they need some mental health issues addressed. And that's where we see a role potentially in the future for community paramedics outside the 911 system. But again, in an area that you know, I think society recognizes as a great need to help people in a different way and connect them to services, particularly mental health services, so they can get better and get the care they need rather than using the 911 system in kind of a revolving door in the ER I think we recognize for folks, especially that are homeless and with these types of mental health issues and needs, 911 and the ER necessarily is the best course for them. It's more getting them more appropriate care. So we're hopeful the community paramedic program can help with that. And what's the snapshot of, of your staffing? Because I, I recall, you know, when we had the shutdown, you had to put a pause, I think, temporarily on some of the classes uh, to train, you know, EMTs and paramedics. So you have openings? Yeah, the good, the good news is we are hiring. We have a, a new group starting, emergency medical technicians. And generally the way we hire is people get hired as emergency medical technicians after being trained through Kapiolani Community College. And then they work for one or two years, and then they go back to school while being paid by the city in what we call a work-study program, where they go back to Kapiolani Community College and go through paramedic school become a paramedic. Paramedics take care of the more advanced type of patients, advanced life support using drugs, cardiac monitors. But what we've resurrected after 10 years is our academy, our EMT academy. So we just did a hiring or in the process of doing a hiring where we're going to bring in 25 people into an EMT academy. We'll probably do two of those in the next six months. So a total of 50 people where people are coming in without EMT training. They didn't go through Kapiolani Community College, but rather they're coming in with just their CPR card. And we've, we at the city have partnered with Kapiolani Community College to do the class for us. So we're going to greatly augment our ranks over the next 
six months with these classes, and it'll be fantastic. So if folks then are interested in either switching fields, trying something different, you know, now's the time. Yep, and we, we have just kind of completed the, making the list for that, who we're going to bring in for testing and interviews. But Kapiolani Community College accepts people uh, for their EMT program every semester, and on their website, you can get lots of information about that. But that's the other way to get into not only the city and county of Honolulu, but the other, other ambulance providers. And there's private ambulance providers, air ambulance providers. There's other EMS roles in the community. But for the city, generally, with the exception of this new academy, we generally hire people who've been trained through Kapiolani. And you are probably in touch with your cohorts on the neighbor islands. What's the snapshot there? What are you hearing? You know, I think their call volume was down also during COVID. They also had a few paramedics on the different islands, in, 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 unfortunately infected with COVID. I understand they made full recoveries as well. They had similar struggles. But one thing that's unique about Honolulu and the city and county of Honolulu is nowhere else in the state do they have the call volume that we have. Most of the neighbor islands I would consider more rural. There are some ambulances in, in like Maui, for instance, that are, that are busy in Hilo but nothing like the volume of our ambulances. You know, some of our downtown ambulances can run 15 calls in a 12-hour shift, and that's, I mean, that's really busy when you take into account going to the call, taking care of the patient, doing the um, cleanup after, writing the reports. Most times in most places across the country, if an ambulance runs a call every two hours, that's considered full-time utilization of that ambulance. So with some of our units running more than a call an hour, that, that's really, really busy. In the city and county of Honolulu, there's big changes coming. If the governor signs uh, House Bill 1281, Honolulu EMS will be the funding and the, and the control will be transferred from the state to the city. So that would be coming in, in July. I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to expand to help the community further. But we'll just take things one step at a time. And Mark, EMS Week, Dr. Jim Ireland has just wound up a news conference announcing that two of its units in Makiki and Eva Beach will be expanding their coverage from 12 hours to 24 hours in a day. It's in part due to volume and to make the coverage consistent with units in other communities. The city has a total of 21 units across the island who respond to thousands of 911 calls every year. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Why are scientists preparing to usher in a new era of space-based astronomy? Well, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to tell us the big news. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny, very troubled planet. And as always, we're turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, aloha, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus and Mars in the west after sunset. Both planets will set shortly after the sun. The moon is passing through its first quarter phase this week, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. I understand you have an update on one revolutionary new space telescope. Yes, after a number of technical delays and a setback due to the ongoing coronavirus situation, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, is finally ready for launch. This next-generation space telescope is set to supersede the Hubble Space Telescope and usher in a new era for space-based astronomy. Last week, it unfilled its primary mirror assembly for the last time on Earth before it heads off into the final frontier. And remind folks why this thing has to fold up, because I'd assume it's quite big. It is fairly enormous for a space telescope. <laughs> it's much larger than the Hubble Space Telescope. And in order for it to fit into the cargo fairing of a launch vehicle, it needs to fold up like a flower. Once it reaches its destination, it will unfurl its primary mirror, which is made up of several segments, and also its sunshade. Unfolded, it will be about the size of a tennis court. Wow, that thing is gigantic. And so tell us about the sunshade. What's that all about? Well, JWST is equipped with high-resolution infrared imaging cameras that need to be kept cold, very cold. Ah. So in order to stop the spacecraft's instruments from heating up, you need a sunshade. Think of it like trying to keep your drinks cold at the beach. The colder the instruments are, the more efficient they will be at their work. And what's the uh, time frame on reaching its destination, Chris? 
Well, after launch, it will take JWST around 30 days to reach its destination. It's a location called L2, which is a Lagrangian point. This is a point in space where the gravitational forces from the Sun, Earth, and Moon are essentially equal, providing a stable spot to conduct space-based astronomy. The downside to this position, though, is it's a long way from the Earth. So if anything goes wrong, we can't send a team to go fix it. Going to have to hope the remote service will work, huh? Sending little computer <laughs> programs to updates and stuff. Indeed. It's Christopher Phillips and another fun and enlightening Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and we keep Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Hurricane season is almost upon us, and questions about climate change and our state's food security are coming back to the forefront. That is the subject of Green Island Films co-founder and producer Anthony Alto's newest episode in his Climate for Change film series. It rolls out on television tonight. Take a listen. A storm like Hurricane Lane shuts down approximately two days before roughly the storm actually strikes. So we lose our importation, which means we're starting to consume our emergency supplies. That means probably about two days after the storm, our market is down well below 40% of its normal capacity and we're drinking ketchup and eating M&Ms. Ketchup and M&Ms. It's the title of a show that launches on Hawaii News Now tonight. It examines our food security issues. The pandemic certainly made for a stark backdrop to examine the vulnerability of the food distribution systems across our state. Anthony Alto has some strong ideas about what he learned making the documentary that he says at times scared him. One of the first things that we do in the film is we explain how close our food distribution system came to collapsing at the start of the lockdown. I think most people in the state aren't aware of the fact that we import almost 100% of our perishable goods. Most of them do not come here on ships. Most of those perishable goods come in chilled containers in the bellies of the aircraft that bring the tourists here. Almost every single aircraft that comes out of LA carries food. When the pandemic started, tourists stopped coming, so the planes stopped coming, so our cargo capacity to bring those foodstuffs here stopped coming. And suddenly the food distributors were like, well, what are we going to do? It was, I won't say a panic because they knew what they were doing, but they were working around the clock seven days a week for five months to find workarounds to continue bringing the food here. Otherwise, we weren't going to eat. And this pandemic really is all about disruption. So when you disrupt the shipping lines, then we've got to go to plan B. And, and that did force us to buy local. Yes, so one of the, the every disaster has a silver lining, right? One of those here is that more people have got, become more conscious about eating healthy. And the farms, which the local farms by and large, again, many people probably don't know this. They probably think that the fresh produce they eat is grown here. In most of the stuff that you buy in stores is flown here. Most of the stuff that's grown here goes or used to go to the restaurants and the hotels. So again, when the lockdown started, all of that demand just evaporated and you had farmers scrambling to find ways to sell their product. The hubs stepped in and the hubs have proved to be a crucial link and the hubs I think are gonna be the mechanism that we can use to start growing more and more of our own food locally and getting it into stores and into people's hands. Because at the moment, the only way that small farmers can get their product into people's hands is through what they call direct to consumer. So that means a farmer stand or it means a CSA box. And obviously the number of people who've subscribed to the CSA boxes has exploded, which is great. The question is to keep that momentum going. It's also to understand that the vast majority of people are going to continue to buy their produce in grocery stores or the clubs. Uh, there's been research on it. And it doesn't look like we're ever going to be able to drop below about 70% uh, of the population. 70% are going to continue to buy in stores. So the question is, how do we get our food that's grown locally into the stores? And I think the, the hubs are going to be a key 
uh, way to do that. And that's what people are working on behind the scenes right now. Because the pandemic did disrupt our supplies, I was turned on to locally grown celery by a friend. And I went to the farmer's market, picked it up, and it was delicious. And yep. so guess what? Now I'm trying to grow my own celery. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, I think people are realizing also that, that the produce that comes from the mainland isn't as fresh, and so it doesn't taste as good. We've all had experiences of buying you know, mangoes that look okay on the outside. They were grown in Mexico or picked three weeks before they were ripe. And they, they taste were terrible. And they just taste terrible, <laughs> exactly. So, so th there are a lot of good things to come out of it. But you know, we have to start off with the realization of just how vulnerable we are. Again, I didn't realize, and you know, I've been in an environment, I was the chair of the Sierra Club on Oahu for, for six years. I think of myself as being fairly well informed on these things. And it turns out that I wasn't. When I started doing research on the film, it, it emerged that we are incredibly vulnerable. So did it scare you? Yes, I actually found it scary. So we have the executive officer of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency in the film telling us that if Hurricane Lane had hit, or if any hurricane bigger than a Category 2 were to hit the south shore of Oahu, within about two days, there would be almost nothing left in the stores, and we'd all be reduced to drinking ketchup and eating M&Ms. That's why the film is called Ketchup and M&Ms. We'll be reduced to drinking ketchup because we won't be able to pump water because our electric grid will be out. And so I had no idea that, that things were that bad. And in fact, he went further than that. He said, if we were able to mount as an effective a response as they did in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, where the feds were able to deliver about 100,000 meals a day, he said, we would be surviving on one meal per person every three days. So that's just barely keeping people alive. Obviously, those people can't be involved in the recovery process. I found that quite mind-blowing. And What's even worse is the report that he put together that described these threats was released more than four years ago. Our elected officials have known about this for, for more than four years, and their response has been to say, okay, we're going to tell every resident in this state to have a two-week supply of food and water in their homes. That's how we're going to be able to survive the first couple of weeks of a disaster. But at the same time, they admit that they reckon only 5 to 10% of the population has two weeks' supply of food and water in their homes. Most people don't even have the space to store that much stuff. I don't know if you know what a two-week supply of water looks like, but it's a yeah, lot. it's a lot. So our uh, hurricane, quote-unquote, hurricane response plan is based on a lie. It's based on this assumption that we all have food and water in our homes, and most people don't. And that is truly worrying. I mean, we have... Again, senior elected officials in the film saying, well, yeah, in that situation, we're expecting violence. We're expecting rioting. And to me, that's not acceptable. We have to start making a, a, a concerted response. And there are all sorts of things that we could do. In the immediate sense, for example, we could build food storage facilities outside the storm inundation zone. At the moment, the storm inundation, if, if a hurricane category two storm comes in, you could forget about all of the food distribution that's located along the south shore of, of Oahu. And let's not forget that all of our food that's imported comes through Honolulu. So this is going to affect the entire state. The, the point being that the port would likely shut down in, if it's hit by anything bigger than a Category 2 because the storm surge would silt up the harbor. You, so you can do whatever you like with Sand Island Access Road to keep it open. But if the harbor is silted up, then the ships, the, the, the huge container ships that deliver the majority of our food here won't be able to get in. I think at low tide, there's only something like a foot clearance anyway in normal times below the bottom of the keel and the ocean floor. So if it gets silted up as they anticipate, and it's not just that the silting up, they, they're assuming that the storm would sweep cars and all kinds of debris into the channel. We do not have the dredging equipment in the state to clear that mess up. We Quickly. cannot. We, yeah, we yeah, can't, cannot. It, they reckon it'll take it at least two weeks just to get the dredging equipment here. And when they look at what happened with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico or Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and they look at what happened to those ports, they're finding that some of those ports were still only at something like 60% of capacity nine months after the hurricane. This is going to take a long time to clean up, and we are just, we're simply not prepared. So what's the other takeaway from the film that you hope people get when they watch this? So 
there are two things that people can do, uh, as far as I'm concerned. One is on the global level. Agriculture accounts for more than 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And of that, the factory farmed meat, which is 99% of our meat supply, is contributing 15% of all greenhouse gases. It is a significant amount. And if we could all start taking steps to eating less meat, I'm not trying to beat people over the head and tell them to become vegan overnight. But to give you one example, the man who did the biggest research project ever on the impacts of agriculture on the climate and the environment is a researcher at Oxford. He tells us in the film that if every American were to give up eating meat just one day a week, it would be the equivalent of taking 35 million cars off the road. So this is significant. It's not little stuff. People tell me, oh, that's so manini. You're asking me to give up meat one day a week. What's the impact of that going to be? Well, if everybody did it, it would be huge. So that's number one. I think we all have a responsibility to do something to try and reduce our carbon footprint. So that's one piece of it. Cut back on your meat consumption. The other piece of it has to be buy local. People have to consciously make an effort to buy local. It's easy enough to say, you know, I'm sort of comfortably middle class. Locally produced fruits and veggies tend to be a more, bit more expensive. Maybe I could afford it. My wife would tell me that I couldn't. But, but I do think that people who do have a little bit of room in their shopping budget should make a conscious effort to buy local. And the interesting thing about that is that the more people buy local, the more local, small local farmers will be able to scale up. That was filmmaker Anthony Alto of Green Island Films. He was talking about the latest in a series of documentaries he's produced. Ketchup and M&M's airs tonight at 7 on K5 and Hawaii News Now's streaming platforms. You can also find more info on our website. That is it for today. Tomorrow we hear from former Transportation Committee Chair Brandon Elefante about his take on rail. What do you think about the latest delays and the problems with the rail cars? We would love to hear what you think. Sound off with us. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember that all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>